I'm Bernie Crane. I'm John Crane. You're listening to the Jazz Session with Jason Crane, our dad. Welcome to the Jazz Session. I'm Jason Crane. The Jazz Session is sponsored by Matt Rock. This is episode 393 for August 6th, 2012. Today's guest is the drummer Robert Jospe. This is a show recorded in Charlottesville. More about that in a few minutes. Thanks to the Respect Sextet for the theme music to today's show. They're online at respectsextet.com. Thanks also to Dave Rabel for the show's logo and Rob Grundle for the Jazz or Bust logo. I'm still in Pennsylvania, State College, Pennsylvania to be exact, hanging out with my kids, although actually as I record today's intro, my kids are in Massachusetts with my parents, so I'm pretty much just hanging out in Pennsylvania for the week and uh, getting some work done and mostly doing preparation for the next phase of the tour, which will start at the end of August, Labor Day weekend, in Detroit at the Detroit Jazz Festival, and then I'll be heading west from there. So if you live anywhere, you know, roughly west of Detroit, I need places to stay, people to interview, and places to read poetry, and it would be great if you could help me do any of those things. You can contact me about those things at jason at thejazzsession.com. You may have noticed that at the beginning of the show, Matt Rocks was the only name listed as a sponsor. There were two other sponsors who... Uh, We're sponsors for a year, and both of their sponsorships have expired, and for uh, two very different reasons, they were unable to continue. And so I am looking for other people to step up and get mentioned twice on every single show. It's pretty easy to do. You can just become a member at the $50 a month level or the $500 a year level. Now, I know for some people listening to this show, that may seem like pretty far out of your financial range. But I know that for many other people listening to this show, 50 bucks a month or $500 in one lump sum is actually not that much money. And it's a huge amount of money for me. It is almost my entire monthly income. So if you were able to uh, to come on at uh, either the $50 a month level or the $500 a year level, that would be an enormous uh, game changer for me. Uh, it's sort of sad that that's true for me, but it, it is the case. So if you can see your way toward doing that, that would be great. And of course, becoming a member at any level is a huge help. Uh, I survive off the income of the show, and the income of the show is not huge. And so you uh, coming on and becoming a member would be a great, great help to me. You can also support the tour, which, as I mentioned, starts again in just a few weeks by going to thejazzsession.com slash tour. You can make a one-time donation there and get the thank you gifts that come along with that. Oh, and by the way, I don't know if I said this, but thejazzsession.com slash join is where you become a member. And there are memberships that start as low as $10 a month or $110 a year. What else have I got to tell you? I don't think too much, so let's just hop into the interview. This is the second of two shows recorded in Charlottesville, Virginia. I want to thank again my friend John Mason for helping to set this up. Uh, the previous show was John Durth, who, which was the last episode, 392. Robert Jospe is actually a guy that I interviewed years ago, I, I think about a decade before this interview. I interviewed him when I worked at uh, Jazz 90.1, a radio station in Rochester, New York, I really enjoyed his music and uh, played it quite a bit on the radio station there and was happy to find out that he lived in Charlottesville. I don't think I knew that when I interviewed him 10 years ago, although it was true then too. And it was great to sit down with him and hear about some of the exciting things he's doing, not just as a performer, but as an educator and really a thinker about the ideas of rhythm and how to transmit those ideas to more people. So we'll hear some music from Robert Jospe and then our interview.
My guest is uh, composer and drummer and educator Robert Juspe, and it's such a pleasure to have you on the show. Thanks for My being here. My pleasure, indeed. Thank you so much for inviting me on the show and for coming down to Charlottesville. Your life in Charlottesville is very multifaceted, but uh, in talking with John Durth this morning, both on tape and afterward, uh, he was really, really uh, gushing about the way in which you get people to deal with rhythm in a very physical, fundamental way. And his contention was that without that, without that really fundamental and and visceral understanding of how rhythm works it's almost impossible to build anything up on top of that that if you, if that doesn't if that isn't there the creation of music becomes a very different task i really agree with that i think it doesn't matter what the genre classical folk jazz it's all about the foundation is the rhythm and then everything is built on that but i really believe after playing for so many years and teaching for so many years that everybody has rhythm it's an innate sense it's almost like a sixth sense we all can keep a beat everybody can go one two three four everybody can do that little children do it every i get so many uh... you know messages and phone calls from young parents who say oh my son or my daughter's a drummer they're going to be a drummer i see them banging on things all the time it's just a natural activity and motion that people have. Maybe it comes from our heartbeat. Maybe it comes from the fact that rhythm is what the universe is built on. It's all about rhythm. It's all about time. And without getting too complex, we can all feel a simple pulse. From the pulse, we then learn how to subdivide the beat, how to syncopate the beat. And through small increments, I've, I've done this now for, for many years, teaching people who have never even played a hand drum before how to groove and syncopate within a matter of you know, quite a short time, even one class. I can, half in 20 minutes, I can get somebody kind of playing a syncopated groove dance beat because it's not that easy. I mean, it's not that hard. And this is what I've been based my course Learn to Groove on is this innate sense of rhythm that everybody has. And I uh, I've gotten a lot of support at the university here because it is such a basic need to have a foundation in rhythm. And there are many musicians who have taken the class who felt they've improved their basic understanding of, you know, it comes down to musicianship skills as you develop more and more knowledge of the language of rhythm, but it all comes from that that just pulse. Everybody can do that. From there, you get into all sorts of vocabulary about rhythm, but that's the basic premise of my Learn to Groove course, and it's a bit of an oxymoron in the sense that I say Learn to Groove, which has become a very popular course. I think the title inspires you. Hey, I want to groove. I want to groove. But really what I tell them the very first day is that you already know how to groove. We all know how to groove. It's just, are we going to build on it? How do we build on that innate sense of time and rhythm that we all possess? Some people say, I have no rhythm or I have no... And and I would say to them, let's see about that. Let's just hang out for a bit and let's see if you really have no rhythm. And it always turns out that everybody does have rhythm. So, And then the other aspect of this idea of grooving, which I have expanded upon a little bit because grooving is a musical term but it's also a state of mind and I've done some work over the years actually for for many years even on meditation the the, the benefits of meditation and mindfulness practice which is used for stress reduction and f- for health and it's been something that has been studied and promoted at health uh, at universities and medical schools throughout the country, and it's becoming more and more recognized. It's actually a big part of my life, too, a meditation practice. Fantastic. Yeah. Well, I was um, spending time with uh, a benefactor and very close friend, Tusi Kluge, who funded my course originally at UVA and has done a lot of work with John Kabat-Zinn, who is a, you may know the name, mm-hmm. in mindfulness practice. And it's a wonderful kind of simple approach to just focusing on the moment, being in the moment, on your senses, non-judgmental, momentary experience, just the moments that we have that we can really be cognizant of, not the past, not the memories, not the fantasies of the future, just the very present moment. In music, we're in that state. 
and in many activities that we do we're in that state if you're playing sports if you're if you're dancing if you're all writing I mean, we do get distracted and we do get caught up in extraneous thoughts, but we come back to the moment. We come back to the moment. And that, so I've expanded a little bit of the course to incorporate some of this mindfulness practice at the beginning of each class, and I've found a tremendous receptivity in students for this. They're stressed out like we all are. We're all worried. We're all freaked to some extent. We're all concerned about how we're going to do, and we have a short time here, and Life is stressful and full of all sorts of stuff. So we take a few minutes just to, to be in the moment to, with our breath, our heartbeat. We do maybe what's called a body scan where we just sort of go through our body, feel our feet to our top of our heads. I either lead it or other students lead it as we get a little more familiar with the practice. Only about five minutes of the class is devoted to that, but it's become part of the concept of grooving. And I really like that, and I found that others appreciate that aspect of it as well. From there, we, we really get into playing and, and learning about different grooves, about African rhythms, about polyrhythms from Africa, about uh, Caribbean grooves, Afro-Cuban grooves, uh, calypso, merengue, samba, I mean, the, uh, all the styles that go along with Afro-Cuban, the mambos and rumbas. Then we go to Brazil, we learn bossa nova, samba, we do um, all sorts of grooves from the United States, swing, funk, R&B, New Orleans, all sorts of stuff. And it all comes from that pulse, just that sense of the beat. And from there, we learn the languages of different styles. And so that's, and then incorporating a little bit of mindfulness is, is, is all part of grooving. And we try to have a, just feel a sense of gratitude just to be together to be in an environment like the University of Virginia, which is an incredible place, and a feeling of, of as I said, gratitude just to be able to, to practice this kind of stuff. interesting tying together this idea of mindfulness with the students who say, I have no sense of rhythm. I wonder if if people just grow up, uh, in many cases, without ever really considering their physicality, considering their body, considering how they move, considering mm-hmm. how they're interacting with the world in a, in a physical way. And so that once you, you know, once you cause someone to just like, okay, now we're going to scan from the feet to the head. I feel like that has a lot of resonance with, okay, now we're just going to feel this simple pulse. And just it sounds like you're just trying to kind of reconnect people to their bodies and where they are to being in themselves. Totally. That's perfectly said because, you know, just to walk down the street, you have rhythm. If you join the army, you're going to march or if you're in the mar- and that's all rhythm. So we all have that basic rhythm. And it is about connecting with your body, and mindfulness practice is about your senses and your body, so the two are really very related. And, um, but on a musical uh, note, I wanted to mention one other thing, which was that part of the inspiration for this course came from hearing that at the Manhattan School of Music in New York, and I think this is correct, that in all, for a jazz major, they are required to take a hand drumming course 
And when I mentioned that to the department here at UVA, the music department, it increased their interest and receptivity to it. And John Durth, who was a terrific friend and, and uh, old, old friend and supporter of mine for this course as well, really backed me up on it. He says, people need to lo- know rhythm. And John works with a lot of students who are in the jazz ensemble. And it's always about the time, man. It's about the rhythms, about playing those, those figures in time, making them swing and having a sense of <clears throat> where is that pulse, where is that quarter note, where is that downbeat. And that's simple. I mean, I've watched the greatest drummers of the 20th century play up close. I studied with, Elvin, uh, with, with Tony Williams for a very short time. I had an incredible opportunity. It was a tiny little window of time where Tony was teaching out of Frank Eppolito's drum shop in New York City in 1971 for about six to nine months. I happened to be there at that time, and I got in on it, and it was amazing. You know, it was a life-changing experience. I was hanging out with Elvin Jones through Dave Liedman, introduced me to Elvin Jones. I became really good friends with Elvin, would hear him all the time at the, at the Vanguard. His wife, Keiko, would get me in. Elvin came to, over to my loft a bunch of times, two or three times. One time we even played uh, two drum sets together. We jammed with Michael Brecker and Don Grolnick in my loft, me on drums and Elvin on drums. I mean, this, wow. this happened. I'm not kidding you. <laughs> but I watch these guys. I watch Roy Haynes, and they're all keeping, even in the most complex rhythmic and musical context, they're keeping a, a steady pulse on the bass drum. You don't hear it, but that was the old style of drum with the doom, 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 chang, chickadang, 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 doom, 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 doom. So that's in there. I mean, obviously they move away from that, but that little sense of just that. That sense of simple pulse, we're all working off of that. And that's where I start, and that's where we end up, and that's what we always come back to in our course, is, is just that, that innate sense of pulse that we can connect with. Where in your own career as a musician did you start conceptualizing things in this way? <laughs> well, I think I started to really articulate it in the way that we're you know, we're talking about it now through doing the course. And I wrote a book called Learn to Groove for drum set and hand drums, which consolidated many of the practices and exercises and approaches that I had been doing for 20, 30 years. Taking actually basic, some basic Latin rhythms, some clave patterns that are used in Afro-Cuban music and in New Orleans music and in Brazilian music, Two measure syncopated phrases and uh, like that, 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 that exactly that that's okay. the basic one. Bop, 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 to bop, bop, to a one, to a one, to a one, to to bop, to bop, which people will also recognize as the rhythm of Bo- every Bo Diddley song, exactly. And Buddy Holly and hits and all, yeah, and stuff, everybody right. can do that, <laughs> right? They, they say people say, I don't have rhythm, they can Bo Diddley out, so they can do it. Uh, then there's the bossa nova and some variations on that and the rumba clave and just ways to develop that basic syncopation. Um, and so I wrote that book and be, to help me as a the jazz drumming instructor here at UVA because I've been doing this since I think 89 was the first year that I started teaching drums. I was the first drum set instructor at UVA and I've been doing it ever since. <laughs> it's pretty amazing. <laughs> But uh, the students get better and better. I get a lot of, as the marching band at UVA has expanded and gotten more intense, I get some terrific players who have great hands from doing marching sure. uh, drums. So they can play. And they want to learn drum set. And they want to s- learn how to play these different styles that know the language of the drum set, which is very multifaceted, as you know. I mean, you play in jazz, it's one kind of language. You play rock, it's another language. You play Latin styles, it's another language. So, Will you talk about how you're using the word language right now? Yeah, well, you know, if you think of French or English, it's all a way of communicating, but the styles on the drum set, I think of them as languages to a certain extent. You may be able to play rock like you can speak English, but you wouldn't know how to speak French unless you studied how to, or went to France or something. It's the same thing to play a rock style is one way to play jazz to swing and to know about triplets is another thing to play the latin styles afro-cuban as another language you go to brazil it's portuguese well it's another musical language as well so that's kind of how i'm thinking sure about it in that way they are all they, you all make the same sounds with your voice but 
that's how you use those sounds and how you shape them. So that's how I have kind of used that analogy to languages by styles on the drum set. And in today's modern world of contemporary drumming, all developed professional drummers, well, I, maybe that's not true to say all, but the vast majority today in jazz are all great rock drummers. They're great Latin drummers. They're great swinging drummers. So it's part of the, the, the whole world of drum set now to know different styles. Is that out of uh, practical necessity? It is practical necessity. You know, for me, it started in New York City. Um, well, I, actually, I started in Boston. And just to do a wedding gig, what they call up in Boston a GB, general business gig. They don't use that term anymore, but that's what in the late 60s, I, when I first started playing gigs, it was, a, you know, a GB gig where you put on a tux or a suit and a tie and you go play either a lounge or you play a wedding. Well, to play a wedding, you've got to be able to play a cha-cha-cha. You've got to be able to play a swing. You've got to be able to play a funky groove. You've got to be able to play a Latin, all different kinds of Latin. And then uh, as I stayed in New York throughout the 1970s and played more and more of different various kinds of, of, of gigs, all those different styles, and especially in New York, just to play a, a wedding, for instance, with a good wedding band, you've got to be able to play it all because they all want to dance to these different styles. And there's so many different cultures in New York, and there's so many different kinds of people that New York was the, the my, my education took place there. For instance, Afro-Cuban drumming and salsa music really developed in the 1970s in New York City. And I would go to Central Park and go to and hear these rumbas, these incredible drum drum hangs in in the park where all these Afro-Cuban drummers would be playing this hellacious kind of stuff and I got exposed to that and then I would sometimes get called to play drum set in a Latin band which was not traditionally the way it goes in Latin music there's bongos, timbales, congas, shakers and clave but as Latin music Came, became a little more contemporary they started incorporating drum sets so to play drum set for a Latin group I had to really know the Latin language the Latin traditions besides just loving that music and loving all these different styles and wanting to I've always wanted to just keep expanding my knowledge of the drums and my knowledge of, of music and the, the styles that I love to play I'm, I'm kind of drawn to, to, to know those from the inside out. like I want to do a, a better job of kind of putting some chronology to what we're talking about because I've been asking you all these big theoretical questions mm -hmm. but I want to put your, your life in more perspective for people. Um, I can do uh, it pretty quickly for you. Sure. Uh, so yeah, I mean I don't think we need to go back as far as how did I first get started on drums but, uh, but I am interested in the move to New York and I mean you had a loft where – and John was talking about this this morning – where just a ton of people who – either were at that time or subsequently became the the great names in the music came to hang out. And so I, I'm you know, that 
is still a very idyllic time in my brain, a time that I did not get to see, and I, yeah. I wonder what it was like for you and how it came to be. Well, it is kind of a memorable, it is memorable, and it's almost uh, mythological or, or legendary <laughs> in the sense that the way I look at it is, you know, the big bang of the 1960s of Train and Miles and Ornette and Horace Silver and Art Blake, all that great music that got developed in the 1960s was reverberating into the 1970s. And a lot of my contemporaries, Michael Brecker, Richie Byrack, uh, Jeff Williams, a great drummer, uh, Frank Tusa, bassist, I could go on and on and on about all the guys that were in their 20s in the early 70s like myself. So I'm, I was born in 1950, and around that time everyone was trying to learn and catch up to the generation that was inspiring them. So there was tons of loft jazz going on. There was tons of practicing and sessions. Every day, musicians were looking for other, whether it was a gig or not, everyone was looking to play and to just to work their, their chops and to try to get in shape and to learn the music. So having a, a loft where people could play, I had two lofts. The first one was in the meat market on 13th Street and 9th Avenue. And the second one was on 21st Street. Well, the first loft that I had was really great. Michael Brecker was, was the only guy that had a key to it other than myself. And he would come over almost daily when he was in town. And we would just play. We would just work out like Elvin and Train. That was the kind of vibe we were going for, just going at it. And there were two other very famous musicians that lived in the same building, Ralph Towner and... Um, Colin Walcott, the from late Oregon, Walcott, from right. Oregon. And Oregon, I was friends with all those guys, with Glenn Moore and Paul McCandless, John, um, and Colin Walcott and Ralph Towner. And they all had places in the country as well as a place in the city. They were always going upstate New York to Woodstock. I was so jealous and envious. I said, <laughs> I want to have a place out of town, too. Because I loved New York, but I loved the country. Sure. And I always had this dream, this fantasy that I could have both a place in New York and a place outside just to get away from the intensity of the city. Well, I never developed a connection to to the northern end of that concept of going up to Woodstock and although I did have friends up there throughout the early 70s and you know thought about going there but then somehow uh with John Durth and myself and his wife Dawn Thompson we uh connected here in Charlottesville and developed a following here with this group Cosmology that we had and as a result of the connection here in Charlottesville we would come down here once or twice a year to play. I love the town, love the place and so throughout the 70s, we, mid to late 70s we were develop, building a following here in Charlottesville. Well it came to 1981 it was time to just take a shot, take, let's go out of the city as a group for the summer, came down to Charlottesville rented a house out in the country and that was the beginning of the kind of endless summer that is still continuing <laughs> right now. Well, I asked, uh, I asked John this question, and I'd like to hear your response to it too, which is you know, that decision to, to stay here, especially for someone who had been as connected into the music scene in New York as you were and uh, you know, was as much a part of that uh, like collective progress forward as you were – it strikes me that it must have been kind of a scary decision to say, yeah, well, I'm sure I can do the same thing in Charlottesville, Virginia, yeah, or whatever well, you it know, might be. At first, I never really felt like I could do it in Charlottesville. And for the first five to six years at least, I was going back and forth. I did an album, my first album as a leader, I did during the uh, mid to late 80s, from about 86 to 90. I worked on this project with keyboardist Stephen Gabori in New York City, who's now playing with Cindy Lauper. And I made my first album, and I was working in his studio in the East Village. I had great people on it. I had John Abercrombie. I had Dave Liebman. I had Michael Brecker. I had John Durth. I had Lincoln Goins, Jeff Golub, all these kind of name players who had been friends of mine came and made guest appearances on the record. And I was kind of thinking that, and I was keeping my loft going as well as a sublet, and Chris Carter was living there, then sometimes I'd stay there. And I kept thinking, I'm not really sure I'm going to make this break to Charlottesville. I'm going to keep my thing going. Maybe if my album connects and I get a big buzz off of it, I could come back and I could make a living as a leader and I could do some things and support myself in New York. Well, the album did pretty well, and it came out, but did not launch a worldwide touring career for me. <laughs> 
And as, but during that time, I was working with this phenomenal guitarist who we met down here, Tim Reynolds, who plays with Dave Matthews, has this TR3 band. And I got into this trio with Tim Reynolds, and we started this band that started, became very active in the area, and we were gigging all the time. Who was the third member of that? It was uh, Ron Pruitt on bass, who okay. was no longer in the area. And then he left, and then there were other people. But for 10 years, Tim and I and other players uh, had this very active, vibrant band that was really playing some phenomenal music, fusion type of stuff. And at the same time, I was working on my own career. And it came to a critical point where I had this loft in New York where I was grandfathered into it, but to be grandfathered into a loft in New York, you have to be there 180 days of the year. That's the legal thing. Now, I was keeping this dual... Uh, identity going with a bank account in New York and trying to keep my legal residence in New York to hold on to the loft, but they wanted me out so they could rent, raise the rent from three fifty a month to thirteen fifty a month, at least. And they were talking about lawyers and inquiries and and it was nineteen oh I guess ninety one or ninety two at that point, and it was like okay. Where do I really live? What, do I, what am I doing? By that time, I had this teaching, uh, small teaching uh, gig here at the university, and it was time to just say, I can't keep this up any longer because I don't want to get into a lawsuit and try to say things under oath that aren't true. I had to let it go. Let the loft go. And, you know, by that time, a lot of the players that you referred to, Schofield and Abercrombie, they were all moving up out of the city as well, getting places out of Manhattan. Manhattan was uh, expensive. and I, But, you know, so it just kind of led to one thing led to another. And then <clears throat> there was another major event that took place in, for me here in, in 1992 where I got an, a grant from the Virginia Commission for the Arts, the state art organization, for my group that I was now leading, the Inner Rhythm Band, which came out of the album that I worked on in New York and the music that I wrote. And a, an assembly, school assembly program that I put together with another drummer from New York City who moved to Richmond, African-American, Afro-Cuban drummer, Kevin Davis. And we put together this World Beat Workshop, which is an assembly program primarily for public schools on how African rhythms have influenced the music of the Americas. Same route and pretty much context and information that I do in Learn to Groove class. It's really the different styles, but this is a history, geography, and music, interactive music lecture for elementary to high school and to university as well of, of how the influence of African culture and particularly African rhythms and drumming influenced the dance music of the 20th century throughout the Americas. So I get this connection with the Virginia Commission for the Arts. I have UVA. I've got TR3, the, the band with Tim Reynolds. I've got my own inner rhythm group, and all of a sudden, I've got a scene. I mean, I'm working, and I've got a life that... And I'm living in the country. I'm still out in the country. <laughs> I rented a house first, and, and now I bought a house. And I li it's a little inconvenient because it's a bit out of town, but it is so beautiful. It is just a gorgeous setting out there by the mountains. And so... You know, things changed, and, and I know that if I had stayed in New York, there would have been a lot of opportunities that I might have been able to take advantage of. Who knows how things go? But you kind of go where you have the support and where life leads you, and uh, I certainly have my moments where I see all my friends from New York that are touring around the world and go, wow, that would have been great. But... At the same time, I am surviving, doing what I love to do, and have a kind of lifestyle that is what I've always wanted. And maybe we don't always get what we want completely out of life, but I get, I've gotten a lot, so I'm pretty grateful for, for everything that's going on right now. But basically, so, you know, it, it, from the move to Charlottesville... And then through these various connections that developed here, that's how our professional life developed in the area.
as you've now had a chance over a couple of decades to watch this kind of like central Virginia, Charlottesville, and Richmond, that kind of thing develop, what have you seen in the in the scene? How have you seen the scene grow since you know the kind of nascent days when you and John and a few others were? Well, it has grown. There are a lot of bands. There there have been some big, big developments. One of the major events was the Dave Matthews Band right out of here in Charlottesville, which I think John and I would both agree we had some influence in because when I was working with TR3 when we first started, Dave Matthews was the bartender at this little club, Miller's, where John is still playing. And Dave and Tim collaborated, and Dave was sitting in with our group. But... I'm not taking credit for that. I'm just saying we kind of brought fusion to Charlottesville. Charlottesville was not a fusion town. It was not a jazz town. It was a blues and R&B type of any of the bands that were here. But it was an artistic and culturally vibrant place because of the university, the history, all the things that take place around Charlottesville. Then Dave Masters exploded and became phenomenally successful. Then they have this uh, Music Today company that is is sending bands all over the country bands are playing there's tons of bands here in charlottesville now rock bands and other things that are playing there are more venues but it's not like there's been a an explosion of jazz here in the sense that um we're all making a a big living through performances then again, you go to New York City and you see guys playing in the clubs that you know for seventy-five bucks a night. If they're lucky, if they're lucky, that's what <laughs> clubs pay. Um, it, it's still a struggle for sure. all of us to get the performance, the, the amount of performing that we really want to do. We all would really probably like to be performing more. I think I can safely say we wish we had a touring type of schedule. We all kind of piece it together week to week, month to month. Um, but, and I think for jazz musicians in general, whether it's Richmond or Tidewater or anywhere, it, it's a struggle. Now, there are, you see at the big festivals all around the world, and I'm sure you see it yourself because you interview everybody, and you see the guys that are really connected and are playing Montreux and North Sea and get all the European gigs, and Abercrombie is one of those guys. Uh, but even John, I know he, every year is different, and... I think it's just the nature of the business. I even hear Herbie Hancock once, you know, is struggles for more more stuff. So who knows? Who knows? And correct me if I'm wrong here, but I would imagine that one benefit of having been here all this time is that you've had a chance to work over an extended period of time with many of the same musicians and probably develop the kind of connectedness and and both musical and personal camaraderie that might be more difficult if you were all constantly you know that's absolutely true that's absolutely true and there's something that is irreplaceable about playing with the same group of players for for decades because we know each other and we you you create something that's bigger than yourself in the group and it's not just like this pickup group and then this pickup group and this tour for a few months with this band and then i mean John and I have been well. That's a whole other story. John and I go back to, to you know back to high school together. <laughs> right. So that, we're, we're talking forty six years or something like that. Right. But still, there's others here that we've been playing together for twenty five years, and uh, so it is a, a a network of players that do, we do know each other very well, and we're able to play with each other in very intimate settings. Sure. Uh, will you talk about your own recording career? You've put out quite a number of albums that I've really enjoyed over the years. And well, thanks. I had a great run, and it's not over yet, but you know, the nature of the CDs business has changed a bit. It sure I, has. I, had, I released four records. For my first one, which I told you about, was a self you know, it was a, an album that I wrote everything for and did it in collaboration with a keyboard player in New York City. And I took quite a few years to do the, the, the project. Then I, in 1990, I recorded my first record with my inner rhythm band, and this was really a live, kind of live CD done in two or three days up in Northern Virginia, and that was called Blue Blaze. And Michael Brecker was the one guest artist on it, did a phenomenal job. The record got four stars in Downbeat. We did really well on Airplay, thanks to you guys and others. Then I released one after that called Time to Play, similar with the same personnel, not Brecker, but everybody else. It got four stars again in Downbeat. <laughs> and we got to number four on the Jazz Week. Nice. The, the Jazz Charts. 
Then two more records after that for the Random Chance label, which was an independent label in New York that uh, took an interest and funded a couple of projects. The last record that I did, which did very well as well, called Heartbeat, got to, did really well on the Jazz Week charts. I think it hit number four as well. Then the, then the kind of CD, you know, it ne- the CDs never translated to a booking agent, to a touring career that I was really hoping to be able to achieve through the records because I cost a lot of money to do it. And they're great to have on gigs, great to get that airplay, great to see the recognition, which really helped me a lot. It didn't translate into uh, the kind of recognition that would make promoters fly me over to Europe with my band or even around the country very much. I did get a couple of great gigs out of it. I did Hawaii twice at the University of Hawaii, a couple of big festivals in North Carolina. Um, But then, uh, as you know, the CD market pretty much collapsed as people went to downloads and digital things. And unless you're gigging a lot, it's hard to make the money back that you invest in a CD. Uh, I do still do a lot of performances at the moment where I'm, I, I do want to release another CD. I really do, and I plan to do it. But at the moment, I'm a little more focused on my website, my new website, which I just uh, updated after about 15 years with all sorts of stuff. And I'm recording this week coming up some video for that. So I'm really thinking more in, the, in video right now. Um, and then another CD project will be coming, no question. But right now I'm putting some of my resources into creating a really complete and up-to-date profile of myself online, and it's already paying off, that I have a good website and that I can update it with pictures and video. That's where I'm going with it for the moment, and I I still have my inner rhythm band that I've been playing with for 20 years, and we're going to record next week at a club here in town, a, a special video session with a bunch of cameras, do some of the all original tunes, and see where that goes. Because as you know, it, it's all about trying to get gigs. Even CDs are about getting gigs. You don't make a lot of money off of them from radio play. You get the recognition, and then hopefully you get the bookings. And at, at, at gigs, you can sell CDs and make some money. I've done very well with that. Um, but we all want to keep recording and putting out new stuff. And... But it's a challenging time for that product, that kind of product these days. It's not to say that you can't still sell stuff online, CD Baby, but I, like I have Spotify for 10 bucks a month, and I can hear anything, anytime I want from any artist, in, and I love that. But they can do that for me, too. They can type <laughs> in Robert Jospin and get all my stuff for nothing sure. for 10 bucks a month. Uh, that's the cost of, that's about the cost of, one CD or less a month, and you can hear anything you want. And we're all carrying our tons of stuff on the iPod. At the same time, YouTube, people go to YouTube, people who book different kinds of events, there's still a need for live music, of course, and I'm kind of focused on that right now. And I have a number, I have my inner rhythm quintet, my inner rhythm quartet, and my trio with two different guitars that I play with quite often, either Royce Campbell on guitar or Adam Larrabee on guitar. We do a lot of little gigs around the area. Some of, in the recession, it's hard to get the kind of fees for a quintet or quartet. I can book a trio, and we'll play some killer stuff. But we do little events, little venues, art centers, colleges, um, some clubs, I have a steady thing at a club here in Charlottesville called Fellini's. I do it once a month with different people. I've been playing a lot with a wonderful saxophonist, Bobby Reed, who plays with the Bruce Hornsby band. has been with Bruce for about 10 years or more. And uh, with John, and we have the Free Bridge Quintet here at the university, which you might have heard about. Mm-hmm. It's our faculty quintet, and we're always, we have two major concerts a year, which we re- create a, our own program for those concerts it's never the same so we're always rehearsing and putting new new stuff together um so uh with those different kinds of groups the free bridge which is university connected and then my trio and quintet and quartet that's kind of where i'm focusing actually i have a, a number of 
concerts this summer, which are going to be really fun. We're playing this festival, Jazz in the Park in Stanton. It's been a festival for about 20 years. It's been going on there. And up at the Wintergreen Performing Arts Series this summer. It's a uh, concert series here in the area. And a few things out of town, up in Arlington and down around Virginia Beach. And with my Virginia Commission for the Arts funding, I can network with presenters all around the state of Virginia. Oh, that's great. And if they're nonprofit, they we can match funds with them. If I want, if I try to get, let's say, you know, two thousand dollars for a concert, I can match their thousand dollars. If they have a thousand dollars for the band, I can match that with the Virginia Commission money that is allocated to me. So with that in in hand, I'm able to. I'm able to contact people, and they know me pretty well, so I can cycle around different kinds of venues throughout the years and, and keep it going. Yeah. yeah. My guest is Robert Juspe uh, here in Charlottesville, and uh, it's been a pleasure. The last time we did this, it was over the phone, and uh, as I said to someone today, you could have been on Mars. I really had no idea even where Charlottesville was on a map, I don't think, at that well, time. I, I certainly remember very vividly those <laughs> wonderful interviews, and I was so thrilled to get a call from Rochester and yeah. some station. I. And uh, I really did uh, make a few inquiries to get on that festival up there and uh, got pretty close to it. But uh, it's wonderful to see you in person, to have you come down to Charlottesville. And what you're doing is phenomenal as well. And I'm just grateful to have a chance to to see you and chat in person. Well, thanks. thanks. I I wish you all the best, and I thank you for your time, Robert. My pleasure. That's music from Robert Jospe, recorded in Charlottesville, Virginia. Thanks again to my friend John Mason for helping to make that a reality, both that interview and the John Durth interview, which is episode 392. I'm Jason Crane. This is The Jazz Session, sponsored by Matt Rock. I could use some more people to lend your name to the show. To do that, you can become a member at the highest level, which is either 50 bucks a month or $500 a year. Again, if that seems like something you can afford without it making you break a sweat... It would mean a lot to me. It is uh, almost the $500 in a lump sum is almost the amount that I make a month. And uh, that's what I survive on. So if you can come up with a, a way to uh, to kick in at that level, you'll be mentioned twice on every show. And more importantly, I think you'll be supporting uh, this show in a, in a big, big way. So please do become a member at whatever level you can afford at thejazzsession.com slash join. You can also support the tour with a one-time donation at thejazzsession.com slash tour. The tour starts again 
Labor Day weekend at the Detroit Jazz Festival and continues west from there. And I need places to stay, people to interview, and places to read poetry. You can contact me at jason at thejazzsession.com if you've got any of those. Follow me on Twitter at Jason D. Crane, and then get out there and support live jazz whenever and wherever you can, and come back next time for another conversation about jazz on The Jazz Session. Bye. Bye.